Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. BT Sport Pods. This episode contains discussion on the topics of mental health and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and by the broadcaster, Anne-Marie Batson. This week's guest is Marvin Sordell, who retired at 28 and is doing hands-on, pioneering work in the field of mental health and football. It can be a cruel game, and the pressure of unrestrained abuse is increasing. No one should have to endure the sort of strain Graham Potter and his family have been under. That's why so many neutrals were happy with Chelsea's progress into the quarter-finals of the Champions League. It has, at the very least... Bought him some time, hasn't it, Adrian? I think it has. He deserves time. He's a builder, isn't he, Graham Potter? He's someone that needs a little bit of time to get to get his philosophy across. And it's a really tough gig at Chelsea because there were just too many players. And it's hard for any manager to handle that amount of high-profile players and to build a team properly, to, to build that, that style, that... That unity, really, between the group of players. What we saw in this game was a big leap forward. I thought it was a really strong performance, a lot of heart, a lot of passion. And the supporters bought into it, didn't they? And and that's really, really important for Graham himself because he knows, he's not silly, he knows that Chelsea's fans are sceptical about him. So it was the kind of assertive performance that that will get them onside for now. He just needs to maintain this now. How does he do that? Do you know what? The starting point for me would be to keep this team. Just keep it for two, three games and run with it and and see if they can build something special. Yeah, well, we always should be aware of of the dangers of snap and short-term judgments. But, um, Amory, I thought... They looked a different team with with G- James and Chilwell together. You agree? 
Hundred percent. Um, I really love the relationship that Ben Chilwell and Reese James have. I think that's they've got such a good dynamic. The friendship on and off the pitch as well, really good for the overlap. They can help to defend. I, I think having I think Adrian's right going back to three four three works so much better for Chelsea and those two have been key to it. I think they were desperate and lucky to lose those two players with injuries, but they're now coming back in the team. Um, and for Reese James particularly, because he is so loved in that position, as well as obviously Ben Chilwell as well. But having that overlap, having those two on the wing just gives it, the fact that they can both attack and defend, I think it just gives Chelsea that extra edge. And I think for the fans, it's a welcome return for them back to two. And, and Aid's right, absolutely right. Stick to that formation for the next couple of games. And I think you'll start to see a rhythm throwing back into the team. Which, which back three... Adrian, do you think would work best? Well, I think that at the moment they're not conceding very many goals, which is a really good starting point. Mm. If you were to go use this back three as a basis, you've got Fafana on the right, Koulibaly in the centre. And and then is it Kukurella or is it Badiashil? I think Badiashil has probably earned the right to, to be first choice for now, while Thiago Silva is out. And then obviously when he's fit and available, they'll... They'll have to find a place for Thiago Silva. But, yeah, for me, it's a, it, defensively, in any team, at any level, you need to build relationships. It's what it's all about. It's understanding what the guy next to you does and what he likes doing and what he doesn't like doing and being able to, to read their next step. And if it's constantly changing, as it has been since he took charge, f- for understandable reasons, then then you can't, you can't build those relationships and everything becomes fragmented. So I would stick with the back three and Amory's bang on about the wing backs, as are you, Mike. It, Graham Potter should never have been judged, really, until he had James and Chilwell in the team because they're game changers. They balance that side out perfectly. And, um, and look, if they stay fit that, that, then and they're still not getting results, then I think he deserves criticism. But for now, he's got something to build on. Yeah, sure, and they are quietly efficient in a defensive sense anyway. Only one goal conceded from open play at home since the World Cup. What about further forward, um, Anne-Marie? You know, obviously, there's still no obvious number nine. Um, Havertz is dropping deeper. You know, is he best as a 10? Who is the best focal point, you think, for their attack? I'm sticking with Kai Havertz. I still believe, I I really like him as a player. I think he's incredibly talented. I think he's very much suited for the Premier League. He's got a great technique on the ball. He's just inconsistent getting the shots off at the end when he's and he's not converting up front. But I still believe he has it in his locker to do, the, to do that. You know, getting that goal, it's his seventh goal um, since January, the first in a long time since January. He is, I like... What I like is when he plays alongside Raheem Sterling and Zhao Felix, get the pronunciation right, which was the same lineup that they have in the Leeds game, which was a 3 4 3. I think that works really well. He needs that service coming from the midfield, which means he can drop deeper and score the goals. He st- I know I, people say he's a young lad. He is a young lad, but it's in there. I really believe it's in there. It's up to Graham Potter to draw it out and have players alongside him to feed him the balls to, so he can. He just needs to finish off more. And I think he will deliver. For me, I think he could be the focal point of attack, but I'm happy to be, you know, 
the argument no. against it. <laughs> I'm with you. Okay. I'm with you. I think I think he's a great technical footballer. Yeah. You know, the quality when he gets his finishing right, he looks a real player. He looks big. He can hold the ball up. He's got smart movement. He's he's a skillful play, brings others into play really, really well. It's just the finishing that's been missing and maybe the ability to run in behind. And that's been a problem. But if you get Raheem Sterling on fire to make those darting runs or Joao Felix, then then maybe that can can override it. I don't see a better option in the here and now than Kai Havertz. Clearly moving forwards, a proper centre-forward a la Ossiman at Napoli, somebody like that would be perfect. But in the here and now, I think Kai Havertz can deliver. But they need to score more goals. I mean, in the Premier League, they've... They've scored one or less in 18 of 25 games. I mean, they've scored more than two once. <laughs> this, this is Chelsea. They've scored more than two goals once in the entire Premier League season. So, so it is an issue, but I think Havertz is the man for now. Yeah, well, you know, obviously they need to follow up uh, at Leicester at the weekend. Uh, but for the moment, at least, the title of London's crisis club has moved uh, a little bit north to Tottenham. The fallout from that Milan defeat uh, over two legs will be profound, won't it, Amory? It was a season-defining failure and also, I think, probably the ultimate condemnation of Antonio Conte's style of management. So at the beginning of the season, I said to a fellow friend who is a massive Spurs fan, I, I will be amazed if this season is not a decent Spurs season. The fact that you had, or you have, Harry Kane, Kulisevsky, Son in that team, you've got a world-class stadium, you know, X amount of money spent on it in the millions and the billions. You've got a world-class manager as well. It's all there. It is all there. And I was actually singing the praises at the beginning of the season. My, 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 haven't things changed quite quickly over the last few weeks or so? Massive fallout. When I checked her social media this morning, you can guess what was trending already. It, the mind absolutely boggles how Spurs have not delivered again. And as an outsider looking in, I cannot understand with all those things that I said at the beginning that the puzzle has not come together for Spurs. Particularly, I think for me, the biggest disappointment is probably Antonio Conte, I would say for me. Getting somebody of his calibre into that club and his remit is to have a deep run at the Premier League, win a trophy, a decent run at the Champions League, at least reach, you know, semi-final, final potentially, given they were there in 2019, has not delivered whatsoever and I wasn't able to watch the match but I've seen clips um preparation for this and it just looking at him on the touchline the body language everything everything and I'm not going to take it away from AC Milan that's a great result for them you know scoring at home and then keeping Spurs quiet in that wonderful stadium that they have Spurs didn't test Milan at all last night despite having the majority of the possession no shots, barely any shots on target. It was all about AC Milan. I mean, the heads in the dressing room afterwards must have been down to like their shoulders, like they're slumped over because it's absolutely perplexing why Spurs find themselves in this place. This is a big moment for them as a club. And I think a decision about next steps will we need to be taken fairly soon. 
Yeah, well, we're recording this first thing on Thursday morning, and it wouldn't surprise me if Conte's gone by the end of the day, if I'm honest. Um, so if we assume that we're coming to the end of the Conte era, uh, if we can talk about it as such, aid, um, Pochettino, Maurizio Pochettino has been mentioned. Do we wonder about that old cliche or that old truism, never go back? Would it be a wise move for him to go back to Spurs? Well, he wasn't loving it, was he? When he when he did leave, um, he was a very cut, very frustrated figure, Mauricio Pochettino. But where does he go next, really? After sort of failing to deliver, I think at, at, at PSG, I don't think there's a there's a queue of top top clubs, you know, waiting to sign him up. So this might be the best offer he gets. For now, and it would give Spurs a lift. Certainly, would would give the Spurs supporters a real boost. The thing with Spurs, I don't think it is that perplexing, to be honest. <laughs> Anybody that understands football and knows football or watches football can see that that Kane, Son, and Kulusevski are the best players in the Spurs team. Why on earth then would Daniel Levy? recruit three of the most defensive managers in recent English football history, in Jose Mourinho, in Nuno Espirito Santo and, and Antonio Conte. Most of the time, Spurs have a five at the back. They have four in midfield and one up front It's when they don't have the ball. People like Son and Kulusevski are spending most of their game inside their own half. They're not getting enough touches in the final third. You need a front foot manager to guide this Spurs team moving forward. You need a manager that will bring younger players in that can press better. And you need a manager that has an attacking mentality, in my opinion. Um, so Pochettino probably does tick tick that box. I think he is more attack-minded. So it's the logical next step. But... but you know, the Spurs board need to look at themselves and say, why on earth did we think it was a good idea to recruit these three managers when we've got one of the best centre forwards in the world who's now barely getting a touch inside the box? Yeah, it's staggering, really. Well, it does beg the question also um, whether Harry Kane is going to be there for too much longer. Um, you know, I know it's an old question, but it's still very relevant, probably more relevant than ever this morning. And also, you've got, you know, Richarlison unhappy he's kicking off um, this morning as well so it's an unhappy um, dressing room Anne-Marie um, they've got 12 games to go to secure the top four place which will get them back into the Champions League but a lot of people at the moment are saying well okay you know there's a financial benefit from getting into the Champions League next season but what's the point if you can't compete and they at the moment they've got no chance of competing have they and you just got to wonder the 2019 Champions League final why they they didn't kick on from that. And and I know some Spurs fans feel it's because of the lack of investment from Levy and the board didn't give Poch assurances that he was seeking post that final, which is potentially one of the reasons why he 
and the, the club moved on from each other as well. There's massive fallout from this, Mike. It's it's putting all your eggs in with one basket and hoping that you will have a deep run at the Champions League, stay within the top four, when you've got Liverpool pretty much now hunting you down to try and break into the top four as well. That's a lot to, to manage as well. And Adrian's right in terms of the lack of service, the creativity that was being cried out from yesterday's game. It's... It's a bizarre... I, I, st I still will stand by what I said. It's perplexing. I just don't understand why they are where they are. I think it's a, it's a multitude of things that Spurs are at where they're at. And, yeah, the jokes are going to go on for the next few hours or so about the lack of trophies, etc., etc. But, but I do I do feel a, a tiny bit of sympathy for some of my Spurs friends as well because I think there was such an expectation this season of being able to deliver... There was so hot. I mean, that stadium, you, all three, we've all been to that stadium. It's mm. a beautiful, beautiful stadium that now is going to be holding concerts for Beyonce and NFL matches if they don't get back into the Champions League next season. Do you know what I mean? It's Is that where it's at right now, that it's all hanging on a European competition? It shouldn't be like that. They shouldn't be in this position at all. Mm. Well, if you can get a ticket for Beyonce, um, let yeah. me know, will you, Amory? <laughs> Uh, Liverpool, um, they're at Bournemouth in the BT Sport lunchtime game on Saturday, um, Adrian. Um, looking further forward, obviously they've been galvanised, or one assumes they've been galvanised by that Manchester United win. Um, are they capable of a miracle in Madrid next week? They're one of very few teams that are capable of going somewhere like that and, and scoring multiple times, but... I think Real Madrid have got too much experience, too much now at the top level of, of the game to to succumb. If I'm being honest, uh, but and and, and Liverpool's defence, I still would have question marks about it at the very highest level. Even though Canate's return has undoubtedly made a made a huge difference. Joe Gomez was really struggling, and Canate who was excellent in the Champions League last year, uh, has made a difference again. But, yeah, look, there's loads to like about Liverpool when they're hot. But we need a bit more of a body of evidence to suggest that they can be consistently hot between now and the end of the season. So, yeah, they, they could. They could smash Real Madrid, I guess. But, yeah, it's a long shot, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Um, what about the evolution of a, of a new front three, Anne-Marie? Um, you know, Mo Salah's been the constant factor um, and probably will be in the coming seasons. It's, it's not been easy, but you can see where they're getting to, can't you? Yeah, and it's, that, the right word is evolution now because we know that Robert Firmino has said now that he will be leaving at the end of the season, so we know which way this is going. And Salah's going to be the constant because we know he signed a long-term deal. So we are looking at that three of now Darwin New Year's and Cody Gakpo, who I like a lot, a lot. And there's something about Dutch players, can I say, that, and I'm probably making a sweeping generalisation here, so I apologise to all people from the Netherlands, but there is something about players from the Netherlands who just get they just get on with it in terms of they're very ice cold on the pitch. They do what they need to do. They're very clinical and off the, you know, off the pitch when you're interviewing them, they, they, you know, they say what they need to say and they're chatty and everything. But there's something about them when they're on the pitch. They're just absolutely ruthless when they've got the ball at the feet. And I'm talking about 
Kevin De Bruyne of this world, the Irving Haaland's of this world. And Cody Gakpo is that. There's something about when he's got the ball at his feet, he just be, he comes alive. And the fact that he scored three in his last four starts in the Premier League, he scored goals against Everton and Manchester United, bitter rivals of Liverpool, so they're going to love him straight away. Do you know what I mean? I, I love watching him when he's on the pitch. I think for me... Out of, you know, Mo Salah, fantastic round of applause for what he's achieved for Liverpool and everything. But Cody, Cody Gakpo is really, really exciting for me. And I think he he replaces, I, I don't like using that word replacement because I think you everybody's unique, but I think he he slots so nicely into that three now that Bobby Firmino is going to be going. I'm excited for him because I think he's a fantastic player. Yeah, they're stacked, aren't they, Mike, in terms of the, the options up front? I mean, you think Luis Diaz has got to come back in, Diogo Jota's fit again now. So they've got five real quality forwards. The only issue I'd have is that none of them are like Roberto Firmino. Firmino is someone that sort of knits everything together. He's got that ability to obviously win the ball high up the pitch, but also bring others into play. With the collection that they've got, the five... It's a little bit all vertical, isn't it? It's a lot about pace, uh, which will blow a lot of teams away. But it's the balance of the five. Could that be better? In my opinion, yeah. But they've got enough. <laughs> I think I think it's the rest of the side that Liverpool probably need to, to reinforce between now and next season. Mm. Another Dutchman, um, Marie Eric Ten Hag, um, his message to Manchester United is... Uh, keep calm and keep winning. Well, good luck with that. Uh, we've got this confected controversy about uh, Veghorst touching the This Is Anfield sign and, and that awful Daily Mail sting uh, about Marcus Rashford driving around in his £280,000 car. I thought we'd left that sort of nonsense behind. Um, are we, do you reckon about to discover who the true leaders at Old Trafford are? Are we about to discover who the true leaders are? Yes, um, I would. I'd, well, I, I think Casemiro's in there, for sure. I, he didn't have a particularly good game, and I think I'm being kind when I say that, um, against Liverpool. But he is there for me. I don't think, personally, I don't think Bruno Fernandes is a leader. And I think, and I felt that for some time, and he pretty much cemented that for me after watching his performance against Liverpool. Manchester United is a team for me, back of old, I know we're now where we are in 2023, but back of old, though, you could look at the likes of like Gary Neville, Roy Keane, and various others on the pitch who were leaders in their own way. Yes, there was a captain, but they were also leaders on that pitch. Fast forward to today, and we're not really seeing that right now, apart from Casemiro. So... Now is the time for Eric Ten Hag to really tell people that they need to be really be aware of each other, what they're doing. If you have to pull somebody up on the pitch because they're not pulling the weight, they've got to do that. Because you didn't see that on the weekend. Not at all, not at all. Because there were arms going up in the air, the failure to track back everything. We all know that. Um, but there has to be, there has to be a leader up at the front, there has to be a leader in the midfield, and there has to be a leader at the back. Because it, without that, without them all talking to each other and, as I say, pulling each other up or praising each other, it's that relationships. It's what Aid said at the beginning. It's about those relationships on the pitch. When things are not going well, who needs to be told about themselves? And when things are going well, giving the praise so they feel that they've got the confidence to go and get another goal and another one and another one. So, yes, now is the time to do that. 
Um, but it's not all doom and gloom for Manchester United. I know this is a big thing, the, the loss to United, uh, loss to Liverpool, but it's not all doom and gloom for Manchester United. So I think there needs to be a little bit of perspective about it. Yeah. Um, I was you know, quite taken with um, Varane, actually, um, at Anfield, haranguing his his teammates to actually go and recognise the away fans there, which to me is obviously a sign of a, a strong character. Um, on a broader issue, uh, Aid, does he deserve praise for highlighting the dangers, uh, increasing dangers of burnout? You know, as he said, you know, I, I feel like I'm suffocating, and that the player is gobbling up the man. They're quite prophetic words, those. It's a striking line, isn't it? I think it, it really is. And it is apt. It is apt because the Premier League season or the, the season for a club that are in European football as well is, is, is all-consuming. And it's just not much time for life, is there, outside of, of the football. And it can absolutely dictate your mood and mindset and, and happiness what happens at work because you're at work so often and and even when you're not at work you're preparing for work and you're living the life that professional footballers have to live um yeah when things go badly and you're a professional footballer where's the escape that is that is often the the problem and and it can affect your mental health because your happiness is often whether you want it to be or not is defined by how it's going and how you're being treated by the manager, how you're playing. Um, so yeah, I think I think footballers do need a little bit more of a break. The schedule is is too too heavy at the moment, and yeah, we don't want to damage these guys. We don't want good players walking away from football because that, that could happen. I mean, Eric Cantona did it years and years ago, of course. You know, they, they earn enough money now to to say no, that's me done. Um, wouldn't surprise me if in the years to come we, we get more of that because the schedule is, ma- is too much. Mm. Well, there are a lot of well-meaning campaigns run by the likes of FIFA, the FA, PFA, uh, about mental health in football. But I don't think you can beat the authenticity of the contribution of someone like Marvin Sordell. Uh, his work in helping others the sort of problems that led to his suicide attempt is absolutely inspirational. Welcome, Marvin. You've been admirably open about your struggles with depression when you retired at at 28. Now, that was, what, four years ago? Um, How much has changed in terms of the support that's offered to players who find themselves in your position? Hey, um, thanks for having me as a starting point. Um, to be honest, I don't know how much has changed. It's difficult to say, really, without um, very much being on the inside as, as I was. But, you know, four years is a long time, and I think conversations have definitely moved forward a hell of a lot in that time, which is remarkable and obviously is a testament to how open the industry has become I would say to the subjects of mental health and you know the human side to you know the football industry but I don't think we're quite there yet I think we're still probably some way off but 
I think the main thing is we're making some strides forward, which is so important. Sure. Can you give me some idea of of the sort of range of maybe players at different stages of their career who are, are reaching out to you? And what are the stories that you find yourself having to process? You know, one thing that's quite often is I get players who who say they wish I could they they could do what I've done, as in walk away from the game on my terms and move into something different and you know whether that's a different industry or different career path but often i have some players who reach out to me on how they can look to move away from the game and into different things because i think people often see football as such a glamorous industry and don't necessarily understand the ins and outs of it and the sacrifices and the the pitfalls that come and you know just because a player works hard doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get rewards from it and i think that's one thing that a lot of people don't necessarily understand about the football industry is that you still have to put in the same level of work regardless of whether you're earning £500 a week or £500,000 a week. You know, and I think there's so many different things that come with that, the pressures and I think the level of control that you don't have over your life I think is a big thing and a big participating factor in a lot of players who find it difficult at times. And, of course, we've had the you know, football and being a football player, particularly in this day and age now, with social media and media and, and the level of pressure and, and sometimes where that crosses over into abuse as well, it's a lot and it's a lot to handle for for any person. So, yeah, that's something that often I, I have players reaching out to me about. Mm. I get a, a really strong sense that this is a very sort of personal crusade for you. Do, do you see a bit of yourself in some of the, the people who, who come to you and talk through their problems? Of course, for sure. I mean, a lot of the time I speak to some people and I can sense a, a bit of a lost soul in, within them. And, you know, that's something I can definitely relate to in, in so many capacities because I felt for a long time, you know, my identity was completely wrapped up and engulfed in just playing football and all of my emotions were dictated by how I was performing. And I thought that was indicative of my relationships as well and it took me a long time to really figure out what was what who I was really and what I could offer the world beyond just playing football and I think that's difficult for someone to to kind of pin everything on just a game that they go out and, and perform and you know it can go well it can go not so well sometimes it's completely out of your out of your hands and out of your control yeah. and so what do you think what do, you, what do you think the biggest lessons are from, from all your experiences? I mean, one of the biggest pieces of advice is I, I always give to players of any age, whether it's young, old, whatever, is, is to find a hobby and essentially find a new hobby. Because I think one thing that we all know is that practically every player that comes into the football industry, they started off playing football because they loved it. And more often than not, it was the escape from the world. It was the safe space that football offered them that allowed them to fall in love with it. And when that becomes a job, which it does for a lot of people, and you know, which is an incredible thing, but when it becomes a job, it isn't just necessarily that pure safe space that only provides positive emotions. It is a place that is going to have negative emotions as well. And whereas if you're going to a place expecting pure positive emotion and also receiving negative emotion, it's going to be very difficult. And if you don't have any form of safe space, any form of hobby, or any form of place where you can unwind emotionally, then as a person, you're going to be very, you're going to be 
in a pretty difficult spot, really. And you know, every every person who who watches football as a fan understands that because football is probably that space for them where they unwind from work and they leave all of the world behind them, essentially. And so I think that's something that is massive for, for football players to to take into their lives as well. Yeah, because dressing rooms are, are, are really difficult places to exist in, aren't they? Because, you know, players are, are conditioned to remaining almost emotionally withdrawn, you know, for, for fairly obvious reasons, like sort of that fear of appearing to be a bit different. You know, yeah, you went I mean, through that, didn't you? Yeah, I mean... Appearing to be different is obviously one thing, but you know, within fo- football is a very competitive environment, and you know, you don't want any excuse, or you don't want people to have any excuses for not giving you the opportunities that you may you think you deserve. And so, that's obviously one massive factor in that, as well as the fact that unfortunately there are people within the world of football, and whether they are managers, coaches, or people who are h- higher up. There are people who are quite manipulative of things and you don't want to give anyone ammo to make things more difficult for you. You know, people who are who potentially are, you know, have contract renewals. I've spoken to many players who have had con they've had mental health problems and they have contract renewals coming up and you know, clubs have decided to not offer them contracts because of that. And you know, it's things like that you you don't necessarily want to put your trust and faith into some people if you're quite unsure. And, you know, that's, I think, something that the football industry needs to get better at as well. Yeah, because it has to has to realise, doesn't it? You know, it's, it's a people business uh, that tends to treat people quite badly. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about the football industry is that it's it's a mix of big business and big emotion, which most industries, I, I can't really think of many, if any, that have that, level of both you know in terms of big emotion and it's like you know charity the charity sector almost where people are expecting just so much positive energy and and for it to to do so much and offer so much whereas it's also big business such as like a a bank or or a hedge fund or wherever it may be and when you bring those two together it's very difficult to find a balance because in the end of the day a lot of football clubs are looking at what's the best way to maximize profit and that doesn't necessarily sometimes the the fallout from that is treating people worse than they need to be but if it maximizes profit some go down that route but i think there are ways to find balance but not obviously an alternative that can be offered to that is if you want to if you want to look at football as a business in that sense and you want to see players as assets what's the best way to protect and maximize your asset you know the Mm. we all understand how key the mind is to performance and to elite performance. And so if you look after that, then you're you're almost providing a safety net for your investment. Yeah, because it's it's too easy, isn't it, Marvin, for for people to lose sight of the fact that, that players and coaches and managers are human beings first and and football people for whatever you know, whatever that means, but football people second. Yeah, I mean it's very difficult because as I said, like there's both a lot of emotion tied into it and a lot of money tied into it as well. And I think sometimes there are these blurred lines where people think that because there's the money and because someone's getting paid a lot of money, they almost become a product and they become they're they're them as a human being ceases to exist. And I think we've seen that in so many different cases within football and, and I mean hopefully that's something that we we start to move away from. But 
And I think that's probably one big issue that we need to tackle as an industry, really. Yeah, because is is the you know the issue of abuse in particular? You know, you, you referenced it earlier on. Is is that getting um, worse? Because it seems that that criticism is becoming you know much more virulent, and judgments are much more random. Um, and you know, we're seeing impact now, not just on the players themselves, but the people around them, their families. Um, yeah. You know, as a as a case in point, you know, Marvin, the the death threats issued to Graham Potter's family. Now they're disgusting. What yeah, can we I do mean, about that? Is there is, is there is there a case here to be made? Well, look, you know, the authorities need to be much more proactive about this. I mean, definitely. I mean, death threats are not they're not a joke. You know, I think they should be taken very seriously. But you know, football. I think, as I said, when it comes to football, because it's so. I think as over the time, over the last probably five years, really, where the amount of money has increased and increased and increased within football. And so because of that, there almost becomes a disconnect between, you know, normal society and football, people within the football industry, such as managers and players. And so because the disconnect is so large in terms of the numbers, people almost say, well, because you're getting paid that much, you should, that's what you deserve to be treated with all that's what you have to deal with it's just but that shouldn't be the case because they're still human beings you know there are people who earn lots of money in lots of different industries who don't have to just put up with being abused or be having death threats just because of the fact that they they earn lots of money you know i don't think that's i don't think that's just an acceptable thing and that's a, a fine you know you don't get to a point in your life where you earn a amount of money and and you become immune to everything yeah because you know Everyone knows the game is awash with money now, isn't it? Um, yeah. Could see, I could see someone like yourself having been through what you've been through, and you know you're a good communicator. You know, I could see maybe a club employing someone like yourself, almost as a bit of a counsellor. Um, you know, are we in an age where okay, we've got strength and conditioning coaches, we've got analysts coming out of the woolwork at all, at all areas. But do we have any mental health coaches? Because, you know, that's part of, of the duty of care to a player, isn't it? I mean, I think probably it's the most important part. You know, I've I, I heard a quote. I don't know if you've heard it before, but I'll say it anyway. Um, and it was attributed to Arsene Wenger. Again, I don't know how accurate that is, but it it is apparently it goes, look at the player and any player as, as a house, essentially. And the foundation is there their technique and their technical ability. The first floor is their physical ability. And the next floor up is their tactical ability. And, you know, you can build the most incredible house that's that's big, solid foundations, but none of that matters if the roof leaks. <laughs> Which is interesting yeah. because, yeah, we all understand, as I said earlier, we all understand how important mindset is to performance and elite performance. And yet it's still a stone that hasn't been turned. It's still a stone that is left there to kind of the imagination really in a lot of aspects. And so I think that's something that it, it has to be an importance and it has to be a priority for football clubs and the football industry really, because you know, as I said, I think it's that safety net as well. You know, if you look, if we look at it from a pure, purely cynical perspective, when it comes to money and and 
and how it's going to gain, how people are going to gain and, and benefit financially, then that is it. It's the, it's the safety net for any club's asset, essentially. Mm. Yeah, because you know we, we talk often very loosely about footballers being role models, don't we? Um, do you think it would help if more players were, were a bit more proactive in in discussing their issues and almost create this impression that their weaknesses, should they exist, are almost admitting those weaknesses is almost you know a, a real sign of strength. Yeah, I mean, I can understand why some don't. You know, if you look at a player who's playing at the top, you know, playing in Premier League for one of the big boys, you know, I think someone reading or seeing that they're struggling with their mental health may find that insulting because the first thing that they would say is that they're earning so much money and so life should be fine, particularly in the current climate. So I can understand why some don't because it wouldn't make them seem like a hero. It would almost make them seem like a villain and people would then pot, fraud and poke even more so where they probably don't want people doing so in their lives. It's difficult. It's very, very difficult. And I think I always say when I speak about mental health and people say, you know, it's it's amazing that I can do so. And I say, well, it's good. I guess I can do so. But the position I'm in, it's easy. It's easy for me to do so because I'm not playing anymore. When I did start doing so, I was playing in League One. And so it isn't as far away removed as playing for Manchester United or an Arsenal or Chelsea or wherever. And so people can slightly relate to my story and, and the fact that I was a bit closer in that sense. And then having mm-hmm. come out of it, I'm not playing football anymore. I'm not in that environment. And so there isn't a case of people looking at me and going, oh, you shouldn't feel like that. Yeah. For you... a lot of people, that is definitely the case. Yeah. Do you miss playing football? I still play football. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, still play, I still play with friends and... and so I, I still managed to get that. I, mean, I knew when retiring that playing was the only aspect of football that I was going to miss. And so, you know, I've replaced, I've managed to replace that. So I'm, yeah. I'm very fortunate. Yeah. How, how much did, did your problems actually teach you about life? Oh, it gave me so much in terms of understanding, wisdom, and just in terms of life lessons and I guess how much it allows me to understand myself and other people and to connect to people. I always say it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm very fortunate that I managed to have that experience of suffering from depression. It sounds very, very bizarre, I'm sure, but it's genuinely the best thing that ever happened to me. And for me, I, I a quote again, I love quotes. <laughs> um, <laughs> a quote, um, from Tony Robbins, he said, the public speaker, he said, um, if you're happy with who you are today, then you must be grateful for both the good and the bad that's happened to you. Because without either, you won't be who you are. And I'm, I'm happy with who I am today. I'm happy with the person I am and the man I am and the way I conduct and carry myself. And, and so because of that, I have to be very grateful for everything that contributed to make me who I am today. Yeah, I I can imagine you know there will be people listening to that to this podcast, and particularly that statement, who would be inspired if that's the right word. Um, as a sort of final point, you know, 
you've got people out there going through the same sort of experiences, the worry with withdrawal. What message do you have for them? What advice do you give that comes from those darker moments that you survived and thrived from? All I'd say is take one moment at a time and that builds up, you know, moments build up to then become hours, a day, days, weeks, months, you know, and I think it's just about taking things in isolation and trying to make the best out of every little moment and every little thing and just building on those really. I think we sometimes look to tackle too much and we look to try and take on the world. And I think when you look at the world and you break it down into into its continents and into its countries and into its regions, and then all of all of a sudden you break it down to, you know, just your house and then just your room and then just where you're sat. You know, you you see that and go, actually I can manage that. And I think it's not about losing sight of what is here currently as opposed to trying to change everything in, in the world in one day. Well, Marvin, um, must admit, I just wish you all the very best uh, for the future. And, um, you know, I don't mind admitting um, I admire hugely what you do for other people. Thanks for your time. I appreciate that. Thanks very much. Well, Adrian, I found that fascinating and a little disturbing to hear of many players openly admitting to Marvin that they would love to emulate him and, and walk away from the game. Mm. Yeah, that's, it is disturbing, isn't it? Um, the line that sort of stood out for me, or one of the lines, was was when he mentioned there's no level of control over your life. And, and this is true. This has always been true, really. I remember it from my own days. You know, the club effectively own you, don't they? And... Yeah, you have to live by their rules, and 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 that you know it's part of the sacrifice of being a footballer. You know, you get paid a lot of money. You have to make sacrifices, of course, but it's it's also a ruthless game. Um, and and yeah, in the past, I don't think enough enough care was given to the players in terms of looking after their their mental health. But I touched on it earlier that, you know, the job can control your mood. It can control, you know, how you are in relationships. Your happiness can be dependent on on what's going on in your football career. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised at, at, at that line at all. Mm. I was also struck, Amory, when he spoke about lost souls. Um, you know, clubs employ strength and conditioning coaches. So why shouldn't they or couldn't they employ, you know, a counsellor or some form of mental health coach? Does football need to look after its own a bit better? I think it, it some of it some of the clubs do, but there's always more that can be done, as we say with these things. It sometimes falls under player care from what I understand. Um, there are opportunities to speak to a counsellor if needed. It's something that's very much pushed in the women's game, of course, having the opportunity to speak to a, a psychologist or somebody who is uh, who is available to talk to when times are getting difficult and you just want to express how you feel. I think, as you said, Mike, 
the governing bodies have been running various campaigns, but I think also the onus is on the clubs themselves and also yourself, yourself as well. And when you are struggling to speak to somebody, because the one thing I, I'd, I wouldn't like is to know that a player is, is, doesn't have avenues available to them to speak to somebody when they desperately need to. That, that thought really sits heavy on my head. I know that if I'm struggling, I know that I can speak to my parents, my friends, um, seek professional help. I, I wouldn't like to think that those options are not available to somebody because they can't. Um, and pushing it forward, it is something, mental health is wealth. So important to have a, a you know, I've had troubles myself. And it was it was a time where I, it was a very, a little bit of a dark time. I've, I've talked about it a little bit, but I know what it's like. So just having those services available, it should be standard across every single club, right from the top of the pyramid, right down to national leagues level, same in the women's game as well. There should be no debate about it. There shouldn't be, well, we don't really have the money kind of thing. It should be the first thing on the list when it comes to services available to a player as and when you need it. Because the one thing that, you know, your body can only do so much, but it is your mind that drives you. It is the mind that controls your feelings. It is the mind that control that looks after every aspect of your life. And you need to take care of it because if, as, if you don't, then things will start to unravel really quickly. But, but clubs have to recognise that. And uh, Marvin talked about the stigma of of going to see someone, some, potentially in-house. It's Can you trust that those conversations aren't then passed on and then those concerns are raised and then, they, the, and then the, you know, the coaching staff or manager might look upon you differently moving forwards? I think it's, yeah, you, you need the whole, you need everybody on board with it. Um, for, for it to work. Otherwise, players are always going to seek individual help, aren't they? Someone outside of the club to speak to just, just for those reasons because they don't want to... They don't want anybody to think negatively on them. They don't want to give somebody an excuse to leave them out of the side or to, to not renew their contract. So I think there's a lot of work to be done moving forward. I speak to a lot of coaches in the academy setup, and I have to say that it is night and day compared to when I was coming through as a footballer. Younger players really are looked after in terms of the psychologists and the, you know, the aftercare there. I, I do Almost every coach I speak to sees it as their duty to help young players become better, more rounded, happier people, as well as good footballers. And, and that is an overwhelmingly positive step. Mm. Do, do you think, Amory, we, we take for granted the resilience of our top players and our top teams because if you think about it every match is treated as life or death you know each defeat isn't regarded as an insult to their supporters you know you need to apologize is it a bit of a time for some sort of perspective here well we need to stop with this nonsense that each defeat is regarded as an insult to fans i think the, the sensible fans out there will think that's absolutely ridiculous yes it's disappointing yes it's maddening at times yes it's frustrating but perspective, perspective, perspective is needed at that point. You know, I'm not a particular fan of, of players having to come out and justify certain things like the apology uh, social posts that we've seen post the Manchester United match, the Liverpool match. I put it out on, on socials, actually. I, I said, I wonder if a player is going to put out a public apology and, and lo and behold, a couple did. 
Resilience is an, imp is an interesting word for me because it's something that when I give talks to young people about coming into the industry and I talk about having to be resilient, having to have that faith, having to have that belief in yourself, having to keep going, having to be determined, all these things that you have, it's like one thing on top of another on top of another. And that can be sometimes difficult to manage when you're swinging upstream uh, without, you know, without the paddle, so to speak. So resilience is important, but I also think perspective is important as well. Yeah, well, I suppose on that note, uh, the pressure will intensify on Manchester City as the Champions League progresses. Yeah, do you expect them to complete the job uh, against Leipzig next week, uh, Aidan, reach the quarterfinals? I do. I didn't think they were great in the in the first leg. I think that Leipzig gave them a, a good game in the second half. I think Leipzig basically didn't turn up until half time. Um, City didn't take full advantage of that, and and then and then they were sort of clinging on a bit. But at the Etihad Stadium, I do expect them to to score goals and enough goals to to progress to the next phase. I'm surprised they're favourites to win the Champions League Manchester City based on the season they're having in terms of the odd little mishap here and there. It seems to be a little bit more frequent than in previous years. And I still don't think that the out of possession, there is, they're, they're top level. I just don't. I think there's, there are mistakes in the defenders if you can get at them. And I look at Bayern Munich and I look at Real Madrid in particular and I see two teams that would get at them and probably punish them. So, yeah, I think they'll get past Leipzig. But in my head, Bayern and Real Madrid are better bets to win the Champions League than Manchester City. But look, they might go and prove me wrong because they are they are an incredibly talented side. I just still think they haven't fully addressed the flaws that have stopped them winning it in the past. Well, Bayern pushed out PSG. Uh, PSG... Uh, out in the last 16 for the fifth time in seven seasons. It's amazing how little about a billion quid can get you these days. Um, it's a club in name only, isn't it, uh, Anne-Marie? And when you look at it, isn't it just an expression of individual egos or a collection of in individual egos and some sort of nebulous state ambition? Nebulous is a great word, Mike. Great word. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> I mean, to, uh, first off, congratulations to Bayern Munich. Got to say that, you know, putting keeping PSG quiet as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a... Can I call it an experiment? I was going to say it's a failed experiment, but I don't even think it's that. It's a disaster. Absolute disaster for PSG. I, I just don't know. You know, the one thing they can take from, they're at the top of the league and table, 11 points clear of second place Marseille. Woo! That's a comfort. Anything else? I, I just, I, I, re, I, I don't know how to talk about PSG because I just think, uh, just wh where do they go from from here? You know, I love watching Lionel Messi play. I love watching Kylian Mbappe play. I'm not the biggest fan of Neymar Junior. He's out with surgery. That's by the by. Uh, it's. I just, I don't know how it, again, it's like the Spurs situation, how it's got to this point that they've not been able to deliver. the. It's not even about expectations either. You've got world-class players in that team, a world-class stadium. They've had managers come through the door. You can't call it a team, though, no, Amory. I know. Sorry to, sorry to interject. It's, That's the problem, yeah. isn't it? They haven't built a team. Yeah. They've just 
spent loads of money on good individuals without thinking about a collective, haven't they? No, I, th- I think it's it's individualism 100% and throwing money at a, a situation rather than actually trying to solve the situation by getting in players. It's that word again, Adrian, that you use, relationships. Very much, It's so important in football and yet it's probably one of the most overlooked things when it comes to building a team. It's like, well, we need a player for this, but then we need to look at how can they build relationships with this person and this person and this person and this person. And sometimes I think that just gets overlooked. It's about what, yes, what that person can bring to the pitch, but also the relationships, the interpersonal relationships as well, as we've seen at other clubs, Adrian. So I think, yeah, it's a collection of individuals that it hasn't worked as in whatever, I don't like using that word experiment. I don't know what to call it, Adrian. I, I think it's a mess. <laughs> it's a it mess. But, uh, to, be, to me, one of, the, one of the, the most damning things is that actually, you know, there's a huge catchment area of talent for, for that club. They have produced players for other clubs from their academy. You've got, you know, alumni all over Europe doing well. Yet, you know, we're drawn back into this sort of psychodrama of the individuals you know, personally, I wouldn't take Neymar if you gave him to me for tuppence. Um, do you expect uh, Adrian um, Mbappe to leave? Um, I probably would leave in his shoes, yeah, because he, he's got his pick, hasn't he? And you only get one career and the PSG project is failing. So, yeah, it, look, if Real Madrid can afford him, or somebody else can afford him, then yeah, I would probably think about think about leaving. It's just yeah, it, for the reasons outlined. Basically, they just haven't mm. been able to create a culture, a team. They've wasted so much money when they could have they could have used their position of strength so much more wisely in terms of building young players, getting the right types of characters in, giving them a couple of years to to develop a team culture. Um, but no, it's, it's been higher and fire with the gaffers and with the players. It, it's just, it, it's getting the old guns out. They just can't resist getting getting their guns out and saying, look, look how strong we are, look how powerful we are, without really thinking about what they're doing. Mm, yeah. Okay, two final uh, talking points, if I may, um, of individual interest, I would suspect. Um, can I start with you, please, Aid? Um, mm-hmm. Arsenal uh, and the Killjoys. Why are the FA making something out of nothing by threatening to punish them for those celebrations, justifiable and understandable celebrations, after that Reese Nelson goal? You were there, weren't you? I was there. And I'd say that that moment, in the context of the game, the way Arsenal came back, in the context of the title race, I would say that that moment was the most sort of instantaneously thrilling moment that I've experienced at a football ground in many, many years. I think it was the same for, you know, 56, 57,000 supporters inside that ground. The outpouring of sort of ecstasy and euphoria for me is one of the greatest adverts for football that you'll ever see. Where else in life do you get that much collective joy and excitement shared among thousands of people. I said in the aftermath of that game, how can people not like football? This is, this is what we're in football for, moments like this. So it, it is quite ridiculous, frankly, that 
that anybody would want to punish Arsenal or any team for the way that they celebrate. It's it, it's just flabbergasting, really. I know we've got to have rules about who enters the field of play. I know, and they're there for a good reason. But in certain situations, I think you have to make an exception and use common sense. Do the FA want to strip Premier League football of that kind of emotion? That's the question they've got to ask themselves. The Premier League will not want to strip it. That is for sure. Because the pictures of Arsenal fans celebrating, the pictures of the players, the staff, they went all around the world and it's the best advert for the league going. Mm. So that's my take on it. Good. I agree with you entirely. Um, Anne-Marie, the whole concept of living legacy for the Lionesses, the government have, have pledged equal access to school PE for girls and boys following the open letter from the England squad... Um, how big a step forward is this? And can you relate it also to your experiences, you know, growing up as a football mag girl? So what it is for me, I think it's huge, first and foremost, and I love the fact this has simply come from a conversation between two players in the Lionesses team, that's Captain Leah Williamson and Lotta Wibbermoy, who were just chatting on the bus, heading to Trafalgar Square after that massive historic win for the Euros. I was there at Wembley Stadium and they just had this conversation and it has snowballed since then. And to see this announcement, which went out on the FA and it got covered by a lot of people yesterday, which was really, really great. It's action, 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 rather than talk, talk, talk for me. And you mentioned about me being a football mad girl. I mean, it's, that's what I've seen. It's always been, you know, we'll have a, let's do this. Let's make this pledge and let's do this. And we're going to try this. And for once, finally, we're actually seeing some action. In my day, it was always, you know, these well-meaning intentions which were never really delivered, and now we're getting it. I mean, it is the government we're talking about, so, that you know, they're going to have to deliver on this. But the rise of women's football, particularly in the level of attendances at those big games, like the Conti Cup final at Selhurst Park, which was a sellout, the matches that England had played, post-Euros, FA Cup finals... Uh, at Wembley Stadium, that has come from England winning the Euros in the Championship. So I think it's fantastic. What I also like about it very much is this word legacy. I think we're starting to move away now from the narrative of inspiring the next generation. Let's get some proper foundations in, and that's what legacy is all about. And I also like the fact that this scheme is also going to be able to help the socially disadvantaged. It's going to be working with kids of special needs as well. Oh, fantastic. I could praise this all day long. And this has been long overdue. I am somebody who wants to see action. And I believe that this pledge will do that. And it's thanks to those two, as well as all the other lionesses as well, writing the letter. But because of a chance conversation, we've now got something tangible. Yeah, well, teams come and go, players rise and fall but the social changes that they can trigger have a permanent impact the lionesses have been a fantastic force for good both on and off the pitch and the movement they've started can't be allowed to stall it has to ensure that every girl and every boy for that matter has access to adequate sporting opportunity We know that it can enrich lives. And in that spirit, I'd like to thank Marvin Sordell for sharing the lessons of his life. And of course, 
I need to thank Anne-Marie and Adrian for their insights. All in all, it's been a decent couple of days for those of us who believe football is more than a game. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Want to know what it takes to make a million bucks? Check out My First Million. Every week we dive into different business opportunities and explain how to pounce on them. From one-man online operations to brick-and-mortar strategies, we cover it all. So whether it's your first million followers or dollars, start getting inspired with My First Million wherever you get your podcasts. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 